Once I left, that was it. There's no going back. No point. Have to move on. Life's too short. All them big houses are closed down and were sold out and the whole, the, the, the all disappeared. So it wasn't, it wasn't that is alone, like. That run, we'll say, of, of a gentry that was in the country at that time, they were coming to an end. It was great um, uh, liberation and emancipation for the people, like, to have holdings of their own. It gave them a great sense of freedom. The version of the past that people have is a mixture of things. It's a mixture of fact and of fiction. It's a mixture of memory and of legend. There's a bit of myth in it, there's a bit of personal experience, and it's arranged to make a satisfactory story. We are travelling through the silence of a country road in Kilkern, County Galway. To our left and right, the flash of yellow firs, grassy ditches and walls of local limestone. Then the road swings left, where a grassy track winds off through the woods. Here on the bend, in a thicket of briars and nettles, a stone building squats. This was the gatehouse to the big house, home of the Darcys, the principal landowners in the locality. It still retains something of its former importance, despite the loss of its windows and its slated roof. Another branch of the Darcy family resided at Wellfort, on the far side of the parish, but New Forest, as this estate was known, was the larger, covering 8,000 acres or more in its prime. Although, by the time the estate was sold in the 1950s, it had dwindled to a fraction of its former size. Willie Challoner was born in the gatehouse. His father and brother were grooms for the Darcys. Like many others from the locality, he remembers when life at New Forest was all very different. Well, we're just starting to come in to drive in towards where the big house is. Just about, roughly about a stretch of mile now from the gatehouse, they are into the yard where the big house is. But at that time, in the, and that is good time now, each side of that road there was cleaned and mowed. And this road was ascended and it was beautiful, the road now. There was none of that shrubbery or stuff at all. Was this clean and the sides of it was kept clipped. Everything had to be kept right and perfect. Drained and hedges cut and maintained. They used to do a lot of hedges around. But uh, the, the trees, most each side of you here now, it was mostly all that silver fir or spruce and scotch fir that was in here. But by the sides of the roads here now, there was an awful lot of, we're coming up to one of them here now, horse chestnut. See the one in front of you here now. The big one, yeah. There was a lot of them out long there, but I think the forestry, when they took over here, then they must knock a lot, and that one was knocked. And they were grand. They used to flower, you know, out. See, the, the flowers are going away now, and they're dying out. There was a um, front yard, it was sort of walled in, uh, there was a big, big gate into it, and there was an arch into the backyard, the farmyard. And the house went in a L shape, 
around the yard. And there was stables in the front yard. Did hardly know Jim. Well, when we go out there, have a job to, to uh, find them it over properly, do you know? Where did you get all the, the... Did you knock something that you took all that rubble out? No, we knocked nothing, Bill. No? No, all of that was when the Land Commission knocked it. They took all the handy stones and left all of that stuff along by the walls. Oh, I know what you so mean, yes. So I gathered it was in the nuisance, the cattle oh, were running on top of it right. and everything like that. Oh, God, yes. And I gathered it up into a big heap there and said to hell with it, do you know what I mean? Oh, yes, I, I, I thought... Well, in the olden days, there was, there was a butler. I never remember him. <laughs> he was long gone before I arrived on the scene. But we had um, a cook and two maids. Um, we had a couple of grooms. Uh, there was um, two coach houses. We used, we used them as car for cars, and there was a, a tack room, and there's fire in the tack room, which they used to boil barley and that for the horses. Uh, during the war, we had a back to back trap, which we used to have shopping in. Oh, yeah, but this, this, this now was the front garden, the flower garden. Here and the the front, the front of the big that's part of the wall of it. You see, they are standing just there. Well, the front of the, the big house there now was facing out into this garden. There was a huge big that's the end of it here now. The, mm -hmm. the stone wall you can see here again that side there. It was a beautiful garden there, all right. Some of the cotoniaster plants are still there. And it's to garden, right? And this was my mother, the last nursing her, used to work here for uh, so many days a week. There was a laundry here where they used to do all the washing and everything. There was a lot of fine, fine um, equipment in the laundry there now, and they had a lovely stove in the centre, and there was a place. For about say, two, four, maybe eight irons standing in the middle of the floor, and there was horses, they used to call them, standing around, and the clothes had been hung in them. It was a lovely place. It was a lovely place there for in the wintertime when you'd come in. And it was so, so warm from this stove and everything. We'd come in with the dinner for my father and brother. Would come in here and they'd eat, they'd eat it here in the laundry. They'd eat it here. And across the road there, then there was the, the carpenter shop. I worked in that for a while. It was just there, now across from us here. And all the workmen would come in there at dinner time and, and uh, sit in there and the mall would have their dinner. My mother was a Bellio, a Grattan Bellio. Her brother lived in Mount Bellio. And she was a direct descendant of Henry Grattan's. My man, grandmother was English. I think she was brown, I'm not sure. I hardly remember her. I was only I was five when she died. Uh, she was a very fine looking woman, very tall, thin. She used to play we had an American organ upstairs. She used to play that. She used to play very nicely too. And we had an altar there, we used to have mass in the house ever so often. My father had four brothers and four sisters when I in the family. 
<coughs> he was in the um, British Army and two of his brothers were in the British Army. One was in the Flying Corps during the First World War. The other one went to South Africa and he was in the South African police. The police. Um, the one that was flying was killed during the war. One of the ones that was in the army was out in the desert and got bad sunstroke. And he was in a home all his life then. And the youngest brother stayed in the army until he retired. And then he came back to live in Ireland, in Athenry. My father left the army early to come home and run the place. I, I presume it was when my grandfather died. I presume, or maybe when he got sick, I don't know. I never knew my grandfather, he was dead long before I came to see. The Irish landlords, as they were known up to maybe two or three generations ago, generally were the descendants of a very large planter stock who were received land in Ireland or who purchased land in Ireland uh, in the 16th and throughout the 17th century. Uh, overwhelmingly of English and Scottish background, overwhelmingly of pr Protestant. And by 1703, about 85% of the total land of Ireland, confiscated or bought, was in the hands of these people. The major exception to the Protestant-Catholic division was in Connacht, where a disproportionate number of Catholic landlords mostly families who had either been moved across the country at the time of different plantations from the east uh, or those who had remained Catholic. And there was a substantial Catholic landlord class west of the Shannon uh, in the province of Connacht. Uh, they would have been, in religious terms, much closer, obviously, to the bulk of their tenantry. But there would still have been a huge gap in terms of social attitudes, in terms of their, their lifestyle, and in terms of their ambitions as well and their orientation, they would have been very much the big house people who saw the world from the top looking down rather than from the bottom looking up. The story was always the same. The major on horseback at dawn, calling, Wall, wall, the empire needs you. Wall, lying trance from toil, wakes like a shot and answers, Yes, major, where's the war? There was always some new upstart to be chastised, some blackguard to be whipped. Decency and the British way of life had to be upheld worldwide. Napoleon had to be stopped. The Tsar taught a smart lesson. The Kaiser and the Kruger brought to heel. You should be proud, Wall, to serve the Empire. Yes, Major. Looking at his thatch cabin, knowing well what no Major would do to decency and his three acres. Sometimes Wall came home and the Major became the dust of empire. Sometimes the Major came home and Wall became part of the next Rocklayer of Waterloo or Balaclava, Gallipoli or the Somme, Normandy or Mafeke. The names and the faces changed with the years. Theodore, Lionel, Jonathan, James. Kevin, Mike, Paddy, John. But the story was always the same. The Major mounted on his horse, Wall, the eternal foot soldier, marching to his commands, Don Quixote and his Sanco Panza, trundling from war to war. There's no trace of the Major now. He is probably waging peace with passion 
in the spirit world. Wall never volunteers for war. His three acres have grown to 60. He always keeps a horse. Wall wouldn't be happy without a horse. That um, poem is, is based on um, seven generations of the Walls who fought in the British Army. And every time uh, the Darcys went to the Darcys in Welforth went to war, they brought the Wall with them. And uh, that was their lives. Well, this, of course, was the front yard now. There was the front yard and the back yard. The front yard was mainly for, for the hunt horses and racing horses. And the backyard was for the agricultural part of the business. Well, mostly they had to be groomed and cleaned and fed. And when they'd be going out riding, they'd get my father and my brother, they'd get the horses ready inside there, saddled and all, and they'd bring them out here. And they'd come out just there. Now they'd come out of the drawing room or sitting room or whatever. It was just over behind you there. And... They'd, take, they'd help them up onto the horses and you know when the yard was so big and kind of closed in there'd be an echo as well and you'd, 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 as soon as they'd come out the door there if you were way down the yard, the backyard there you'd hear them uh, on the cobblestones Our nearest neighbour would be Mount Bellew the next nearest one that we had was um, now uh, farmers you know the next one was in a housecraft. And we used to have hack, hack 18 miles to a meet the day before we meet. And we'd have to hack home then the following day. He used to breed thoroughbreds. He used to race horses himself. And he bred hunters as well. Um, <coughs> had some good horses. My mother rode too, she rode side saddle. Um, they both, at one time, jumped in the RDS. Her two sisters, my mother's two sisters, jumped as well. We used to come in on a Sunday evening now with uh, my father. He used to always to come in to feed the horses. Mm. And you see that? And the thing has gone from around it. There was a shoot around that timber. Yes, which I can show you one over in the other in yeah. the other stable build. There's yeah. still one there where they used to throw we down used the to, hay. We used to be that frail around here in the daft, you know, yeah. and we used to follow him up the stairs. And when he'd, he'd pack that chute with hay, and the next thing he'd jump into it. And God, we didn't know where he was going and what had happened. And uh, he'd push it down before him. Yes. And open the bottom again. God, that fear of the largest to be honest. How will we go down? Or what? <laughs> it yeah. was that dark. There was no, no lights, like no yes, electric lights or anything at all. Like that. So, but the stables are in, in, in fair good nick. I can see that. Wasn't that? Look at the strength of the beam. Yeah. Look at the door, the thickness of it. Yeah. Yes. Honestly, yeah. All the, all the stuff up there and the walls. See how they were done. Yeah. Mm. What used to write on the boards behind us there? Oh, here? Yes. Uh, I, I, more, well, that was never used now a long, long time. Mm-hmm. It was mostly used, like, if, if there was a horse there now that wasn't, we'll say, allowed to be fed, yes. to be put up there, yeah. his name would be there, and, and not to feed him this evening, yeah. or, or the 
might be another fellow up there on that one. He, he's, he's have to get a special, yeah, he'd have to get a special food. Yes. Maybe medicine or something like that. Now, they had them in all the, in all the, in all the houses. The village I was born in, uh, Newcastle it was called, it was also popularly known as the Colony. And the Colony was a group, it was, I think there was about 15 houses built by one generation of the Darcys for his workers. And in one of these houses I was born. And my father, like, worked all his, most of his working life for Darcy and his father before him. And uh, that would be about 150 years ago they built this uh, stone cottages in a bog for them. And it was long, laborious uh, work and pay was very, very poor. Very poor indeed. And the working conditions were very bad too in the sense that they weren't even allowed into the... There was a big wall, it was a walled house and there was a wall around the air as well. And the field workers would have to wait outside uh, the wall for if they wanted water for their tea. They'd have to wait there until one of the pantry maids would come out and, and supply them with the water. And that happened up to the time of James's mother who was one of the Grattan Bellows and the spoke in the locality that spoke very well of her. They described her as a lady because she put an end to all that snobbish nonsense and would allow them into the back kitchen to get the water for their tea. So that was more or less the kind of prevailing atmosphere they worked under. We used to love working on the farm, helping on the farm with the hay and the dipping and the turf cutting turf cutting was we always used to love that because we used to have to bring up the meal for, we used to get a gang in to cut the turf we couldn't cut it enough ourselves and that meant that lunch had to be brought up to them and there was always a couple of kegs of porter we brought up at a bogey and we used to love to go up and dish out the lunch and the tea the same and it was the same when we were doing the shearing of the sheep there was a gang in as well and we used to help to cut the turf too we tried to cut it but well I couldn't cut it because I was left handed and they'd only right handed slaves but we used to catch it, they used to throw it down over the bog hole and we'd catch it and put it into the barrow and wheel it away and um, if they didn't throw it right Slithered all down you, you missed it. <laughs> um, we used to enjoy that. We always enjoyed the hay. Um, when we were very small, we used to love to ride the horse that um, pulled the tumble rake. It was a big wooden rake that gathered the hay and then you tumbled it over when you got to the cock. I looked after the cattle and the oars and the lambs. Shear the sheep, dip them, dose them. That's what I, that's what I would do. Ginger was the cow man. Dennis Duffy was the plough man, double fora, three horses, two foras, three horses pulling it, plough. Cutting thrishles in the summer, cleaning drains in winter time, all that. Cut the tort. We used to have a male, 30 men, 
one day, talk to me. He used to give them firewood and loads of rushes for covering spoons and catching, catching the stacks and the hay, all that. Uh-huh. They were tough old times, hungry old days too. He was a great shooting man. We all did a lot of shooting. Um, rough shooting, snipe, pheasants, uh, woodcock, duck. And we went to big shoots, cover shoots. Now one shoot I was at, Douglas Hyde was at it. He used to go regularly to this shoot down in Roscommon. And uh, I used to love to be his bag boy, collect the birds, you know, for him. And um, he was a very charming old man, very amusing. They'd be in, in all them woods, as you see out long there now, and they'd have big ash plants or stick, and they'd be hitting the trees. You'd hear the banging going on, and they'd be shouting. When, when the pheasant had raised in, they wouldn't shoot a hen pheasant. They'd only shoot the cock pheasant. And they'd shout, and you'd hear them shouting, cock, cock. If there was a hen, they'd shout a hen, you know, so that the fellas wouldn't, in case they might fire. Every man would have a plant. And they'd shout, and they'd be shouting, you know, just shouting, hi, 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 and cock, or hen, or woodcock, and all that sort of shouting, you know, and the bang. Oh, it was like, like the war beyond. <laughs> So far as the attitudes of both the tenants, both the poorer tenants and the more substantial farmers, as it were, towards the landlord or the landlord's agent, or towards the lady of the house, or towards the whole, uh, if you like, social set who would have hunted, who would have been part of the entertainment scene, the balls, the country visits, the picnics, the regattas and so on, the attitudes were very ambivalent. There would have been, on the one hand, a sense of, uh, uh, if you like, awe, uh, a sense of wonder, uh, a sense of admiration, and depending on the the habits of these landlords, whether they were generous, whether they were considerate, whether they had a good name or a bad name, as it were, for looking after tenants who were sick, for remembering birthdays, for giving somebody a, a chicken at Christmas or for a wedding or whatever it was, they would have had a good reputation or a not-so-good reputation. The, the birthday parties and the shooting parties and... Uh, the, the, the shoot party used to be the best of the whole lot. And just a little bit down from you there now, where the kitchen was. And they'd have the bottles of Guinness, and Guinness that time was, was didn't seldom, or didn't often you see a bottle of Guinness or two rolling the floor. And all the finest of, of sweet cakes that time now uh, was another item that wasn't too plentiful in the, in, the, in the country houses and there'd be heaps of that and all sorts of meat and other sort of thing and dance thing and all that had music and all the Jesus there used to be a famous night now they'd be talking about that night for half the year talking about coming and talking about going and they would go and invite all the neighbours around in they weren't like they weren't that there was no ways at all against the neighbours. Or the neighbours taught a lot. They taught highly about them now. But as far as we were concerned, or I was anyways, or a lot more, you, you, you couldn't say anything about them. They were, 
they were they were like they were a class a class of their own. Uh, besides, we'll say the local people. Well, you see, I was very much younger than the others, and I mixed with them more because they used to come up to play with me. The the local some of the locals' children used to come up to play with me, and I used to go down to play with them. So maybe um, I mixed more with them than the others did because I was on my own. I was very much younger than the others. So that probably broke the ice for me. And I didn't feel any difference then. My father wasn't standoffish or anything, but he just, you know, he just didn't mix really. I mean, if you met him on the side of the road and he was out riding or that, you know, he'd stop and have a chat with them. And, or if he was shooting, he'd have a chat with them if he met them. But they didn't socialise. Just the way he was brought up, you know. Um, in his father's day, now you wouldn't have mixed with them. You wouldn't mix with what he would have called it in those days. You wouldn't mix with the peasants, you know. I mean, you'd say hello and you talk to them, all right, but you wouldn't mix with the peasants. Which I always thought was a horrible sort of expression to use. But however, that's what they used in those days. Between the whole lot, there could be twenty involved here. Working on and off and herds and and maids and the whole the whole lot and like you couldn't get you couldn't expect to get them all to think the one way about the family. I mean, you you meet them in the road and lovely horses and lovely clothes and all this sort of thing and you you're up toes maybe out through your shoes and you're going along and and you'd be thinking of yourself, God Almighty, they must be. They were all right and happy for them, you know. Well, there'd be there'd be a lot taken it up that way. I know I knew one or two, but they, they weren't what they never worked here. But they were they could cut his throat all right if they got a hold of them. And that was that was um, people that was expecting to get the land, mm. you know. That was anxious to get him all that. In all peasant societies that we know of, land access to land is a vital matter. It's a matter of life and death. In the case of Ireland, because of the particular historical circumstances of dispossession, of land confiscation, and of land being taken from the losers and being given to the winners on the basis of religious affiliation and of military and political connections in the 16th and the 17th century, land was a deeply emotive issue. It had to do with the structure of power. It had to do with the feeling of having won and having lost, having been fortunate and having been cheated, as it were. And even the poorer classes, though they may never, or their ancestors before them may never have owned land at all, they began to have the same feeling that somehow or other they were cheated out of their rights in that great spoliation of the 16th and 17th century. And afterwards, when so many of their own families had to emigrate, there was a bigger resentment that they left because there was nothing for them here. And therefore, having access to land or getting back the land, even if it's only five acres of scrubland, even if it was only in John B. Keane's famous play, The Field, The Single Field, there was a, an intensity about the longing to have land as security and to have land, as, as it were, almost as a settling of the historical record, as closing the chapter on confiscation, of having a, the land back, as it were, again. There was an element in that that came close to obsession in many parts of the rural countryside and that made many hang on to holdings which were uneconomic and many canvass and, 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 and go around for political parties on the basis of the hope of getting a redistribution of five, six or 15 acres that wouldn't make a whole lot of difference 
one way or the other, but there was a great emotional satisfaction in having it. It was as if the account had been settled with the history of the 16th and 17th century. You know, we never thought we were going to take it over. I mean, he was still farming the place. There was a couple of fields he let because he didn't want them. He, he, didn't, he wanted, didn't want to till them or that, and he left them because they want, the farmer wanted them. So he said, all right, I left you for a short while, you know. But, I mean, he was still, you can have the place the same as ever. <coughs> it was just the, the Land League um, put pressure on the land, the Land Commission to take it over. I think that's why my father gave in in the end, because there was spike in his fields. And he couldn't make hay. <coughs> but would he have spoken about that? You, you only presume that, is it? Or... Well, no, I knew that. I mean, I was there when it happened. They put spikes in the field, big, long spikes. Could be stakes or could be metal. Stick it down the field so that when you go to cut the the, the, the corn or, or the hay, that your machine gets broken on these spikes. You can't cut it. Did you ever hear it? Never heard that. No, no, no that's the first I've actually heard of it. It is, it is. The first yeah. I heard of it too. Yeah. Because, uh, but I was telling him, uh, telling James that it probably may be what she was trying to tell him was the time uh, of the war that the, the spike the farms with poles and heaps of stones and everything to stop the aircraft yeah, from landing. Land. Land. All the farm in front of your house abroad, now, your, your father's house, yeah. and not your grandfather's house, was that was all poled with timber cut into lints and put down zigzag everywhere around the farm. So they were there for years, and even for years after mm -hmm. the after the war was over. Mm -hmm. But that's the only spike I never I heard of. Her. Well, my father was very ill. He just had a stroke. The thought of leaving the place, he was old, quite old at the time, and the thought of leaving the place where he'd been reared and all his and lived all his life, um, upset him so much that he had a stroke, and. Um, hadn't anywhere to go. The place wasn't finalised that they were looking at and it wasn't ready for them. So he had to come up here to my cousins, where I was at the time, to stay with us. He had to come up in an ambulance. So it was really quite traumatic. And my mother was left then to clear everything out and have an auction on her own. And it was really very upsetting for everybody, including the two servants who were still with us. They were, you know, they, they didn't like to go. They didn't want to go. But they came with us. I was told not to bid them goodbye or not to come near the yard at all. I was told that by Mrs. Darcy herself. Don't bid Mr. Good, Mr. Darcy goodbye. Sure, they didn't last long a month. And I didn't bid her goodbye, Dorian, no one. Fate all, 
the cook now. I said, I got the order now and not to him, he said. You know, make him too lonesome, she said. Mm-hmm. Mm. He asked me, could I be sure and call to see him? When I get well. That's if I get well, he said. That's if I get well. I said, I will. Oh, it'll be a nice spin for you, he said. And you can stay the night, he said. Mm. I said, it will, of course. I said, <laughs> I said, how many times did I walk? And, oh, I know, he said. <laughs> I know. Many times did I walk it and, and stuff. Fifteen, twenty cattle. Mm. me Dirty itself now was nearly one of the, the, the last to go. Bellas was gone and Blake's Ballygluna was gone. Cares of Mount Hazel was gone. You know, when when the change came in the times and, and the wages went up, mm. it hit those farms. Uh, they weren't able to get enough money when the when the high wages started to go higher. And eventually they were getting old as well. The mall declined and the mall went down, whatever. They all so I think they've finished at that. I don't think there's any of them at all back at that sort of none of the gentry type are. Local local some local farmers now are operating just as good as them. Have a lot of land bought up and small small farms aren't much good now. And a lot of them sold and gone in making bigger farms. So the times, the change in times done away with all those big houses and gentry. I wonder why why did the Land Commission demolish all of these houses? Why what was the re- reason? Well I wouldn't think there's an an, only one reason to make money. To knock them down and, and, and sell off all the doors, windows and mm. slates and timber and mm. all that sort of thing. Chawed. Oh, stop. It was, it was terrible to flatten them down. It, as Bill says, it was reckless, but it, I, there's probably no excuse to say it was in the Times, but it effectively was in the Times because all the estates that were divided, they required an awful lot of um, materials to make the roads, but because the land was divided up and everything like that, and the access has to be made into yeah. it. And there was no way of, uh, we'll say, you weren't going to get your 20 to or 25 tonne lorry with your double axle yeah. to bring a load of stones to you that time. It was brought from here by horses and carts wow. and everything like that. Wow. So... To some extent, there was a kind of a logic in it, but um, part of it, I don't know, was it a, an ethos of the time that, you know, do we want to erase all memory of these large houses yeah. and the misery they represented? Misery, inverted commas. I don't know. Is that? I can't imagine that that would be a mindset of an organisation like the Land Commission, but it was probably the, the, I won't say the mindset, but to be an undercurrent in the people who got land and that type of thing, that look at, we, you know, the materials are used, we'll use them locally to build the roads and culverts and this type of thing. And, you know, in the process, if we'll say any memory of what happened in the, the big house, if we want to call it, that was gone, well, I don't think people wanted to hold on to these memories, did they? Uh, no, I wouldn't think so. Do, do you see in any way, ironic, we'll say that the herds or the cowmen's, grandson is now 
owner of the yeah. ground. The, I, I do, I do, like I suppose. I do see um, there is a certain irony in it, I must admit. There is a certain irony in it. And, um, you know, it hasn't escaped me at times, but you move with the times, that's what happens. We had there, we had, um, I suppose there was about, it was the original bog where they built a little house. There was about 10 acres of bog. Now, it was pure bog. But generations turned it by their own hair endeavour. They turned it into some kind of land. And then in the 30s, uh, 1936, I think, we got 11 acres in Rockfield at the first divide of the Darcy Estate. And in the last divide of it, we got five acres in Collier now, if you added them three things up together, you get up around maybe 28, 29 acres of land. And um, uh, when I got a job as a, as a teacher, I, 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 um, I sold it. I sold it about 20 years ago. And all I have up there now in Kilkerton, I'm like the Darcy's in the finish. All I have is a grave up there too. Let me see. That's Isidore. He was the youngest brother. He was in the army. That's Hyacinth. He's the one that went to South Africa in the police. And that other one is Richard, the one I was telling you got some stroke. And that one over there is Willie. He was in the flying corps. That's my father. That's the house. Someday I'll find somewhere to put them. This house is really too small for big pictures. In all of my wanderings, find sights I have seen from the streets of New York to the towns of the Queen. Yet there's one little village. Still me own pride and joy, Kilcadden, my hometown, where I played as a boy. In all of our homes, friendly people you'll meet, with a clasp of the hand and a smile you'll greet. The version of the past that people have is a mixture of things. It's a mixture of fact and of fiction. It's a mixture of memory and of legend. There's a bit of myth in it. There's a bit of personal experience. And it's arranged to make a satisfactory story. That's as true for those who are the descendants of the landlords as it is for those who are the descendants of the tenants. The version of history from below and the version of history from above will be very different. There'll be certain common ground. But by and large, the memories that people carry and the way they construct the historical record in order to make sense of their own lives, the lives of their parents and of the circumstances in which they find themselves, will rarely tally in a society in which there are conflicts, in a society in which there are people on top and people down below, in which there is struggle. It's really the matter for historians or indeed for journalists and documentary people, people concerned with evidence, to go sifting. There is never a final answer because perspective and subjectivity and the frailty of memory will always allow you to see at least two and very often more than two sides to any good story. They hung Bobby Kilkenny high up on the hill 
If the writ it still ran, they'd be hanging still. But then came the rising, when our people walked tall. And the gale of Kilkerton, they answered the call. From Wellfort to Newtown, marched brave men and bold. And of Ballan Milltown, the stories are told. And her sons and her daughters give three shouts of joy. For Kilkerton, my hometown, where I played as a boy. I just, I just don't want to go back. I just don't go back. That's it. It's finished behind me. I don't want to see the place as it is demolished anyway. I'd rather remember it the way it was. But even if it was still standing, I wouldn't go back. Because I still remember, I'd still like to remember it the way I used to see it. Thank you.